United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two or three times. It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a really exciting show for you today, my friends. So once more, into the fray. Welcome back, and I want to begin by acknowledging... It's been a tough week for many, if not all of us, and I know there are a lot of other matters on people's minds beyond climate change. There was a discussion here at South of Two Degrees as to whether or not we should take a break for a week. Ultimately, though, we believe that many of us around the globe could use some good news, something that brings up spirits, maybe affords a moment of reprieve, or just gives us some hope, kind of like the successful launch of the Falcon 9 by SpaceX on Saturday. And while what we are doing is far from launching a rocket into space, we do think this show will be worthwhile and give you a little break from the world around you, even just for a few minutes. So within that good vibes thread, if you will, we decided to continue the positive climate change news we tapped into last week with our show on the Montreal Protocol and how it's affecting the beneficial changes in the Earth's climate systems. Now, A few weeks back, I mentioned offhandedly the effects of COVID-19 and the subsequent shelter-at-home orders and how they may or may not ultimately affect anthropogenic CO2 emissions. Well, we received a fair amount of feedback requesting an entire show dedicated to that one offhanded remark. So, as they say, ask and you shall receive. Today's paper that we're going to look at is titled Temporary Reductions in Daily Global CO2 Emissions During the COVID-19 Forced Confinement, and it was published on the 19th of May, 2020, so just less than two weeks ago. Again, links are live on the website if you want to read the article for yourself. And while I know I promised you good news, which I will deliver, but before we dive into the paper, let's take a brief look at the timeline of COVID-19 as it is integral to our story today. Now, on the very last day of 2019, China reported to the World Health Organization that an unusual pneumonia had affected several people in the city of Wuhan, a thriving metropolis of 11 million people, and that the virus was unknown. The next day, China reported 40 infected individuals with contact tracing pointing to a local wet market. Now, on January 7th of 2020, the virus was identified as a novel coronavirus and designated 2019 NCOV, followed by the first global death on January 9th, a 61-year-old man. On January 13th, the first case was reported outside of China, a woman in Thailand who had recently traveled from Wuhan. By January 17th, the United States announced it would start screening passengers traveling from Wuhan. However, this was too late to reduce the spread as authorities in the U.S., Nepal, France, Australia, Malaysia, Singapore, South Korea, Vietnam, and Taiwan had all confirmed cases over the following days. On January 20th, China confirmed human-to-human transmission, and within a week, an effective lockdown affecting 56 million people in China was in place. It wasn't until January 30th that the World Health Organization declared a global emergency. 
Within the first week of February, new cases were confirmed around the globe, including India, Philippines, Russia, Spain, Sweden, the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, Germany, Japan, Singapore, the U.S., the UAE, and Vietnam. By January 31st, the U.S. shut down travel from China, and on February 11th, the World Health Organization announced the novel coronavirus would be called COVID-19 as countries around the world started to report their first deaths. On February 29th, Leap Year's Day, Seattle reported the first death in the United States. By March 5th, as death tolls continued to rise, Saudi Arabia announced its first case and in less than three days had locked down the country and suspended all schools until further notice. Just three days. At the same time, Italy announced a lockdown affecting 16 million people. Finally, on March 11th, the World Health Organization classified COVID-19 as a global pandemic, followed by the Center for Disease Control recommending a ban on gatherings of more than 50 people. On St. Patrick's Day, the EU shut down travel from outside the bloc. In Australia, the Prime Minister announced for the first time ever a human biosecurity emergency on March 18th as Guatemala and Chile shut down their borders. India followed suit on March 24th, and by March 30th, approximately 256 million Americans were under shelter-at-home orders. On April 15th, the International Monetary Fund warned that the global economy was headed for its worst downturn since the Great Depression, with an approximate contraction of 3%, a dip of 6.3% from its prior forecast. By April 26th, the global death toll had topped 200,000 people. And while the pandemic continues to affect lives around the world, we'll stop there as our paper today analyzed data only through the end of April. The paper does extrapolate out with various scenarios through the end of 2020, but we'll get into that in a bit. Now, what makes COVID-19's outbreak more interesting than other economic crises is that it's grounded in constrained individual behavior, thus significantly impacting greenhouse gases, especially CO2. But before we get too deep, you should know that no system is in place to monitor CO2 emissions in real time, as important as it is to climate change. Typically, CO2 emissions numbers are reported on an annual basis, and despite the availability of proxy data, CO2 emissions from electrical usage, fossil fuels burned, are all extremely difficult to extrapolate. So you might be saying, hey, don't scientists talk about being able to detect CO2 in the atmosphere in nearly real time? The answer is yes. However, because of meteorological events and natural fluxes in the variability of the carbon cycle, anthropogenic CO2 emissions over a very short time span is nigh impossible. All that said, there are some ways you can go about estimating the reduction over the few months that the world has been dealing with COVID-19. To do that, this paper started with the fact that over the last decade, anthropogenic CO2 emissions have increased roughly 1% a year. Further, the paper looked at shutdown policies put in place by various countries around the globe and divided them into three confinement policy groups. One, individual restrictions. Two, regional restrictions. And three, national restrictions. These were then analyzed by breaking down six economic sectors, specifically power, industry, surface transport, residential, public buildings and commerce, and aviation. 
Of those six sectors, power accounts for 44.3% of anthropogenic CO2 emissions traditionally, where industry accounts for 22.4%, surface transport 20.6%, residential 5.6%, public buildings and commerce 4.2%, and aviation 2.8%. Now, this analysis was done over 69 countries, 30 Chinese provinces, and all 50 states in the U.S., This group represents roughly 85% of the world's population and 97% of global CO2 emissions. So to the critics out there, yes, 3% of global emissions was left out, or essentially the amount of the entire aviation sector. But regardless, capturing 97% gives us a pretty clear picture. Now, as a COVID-19 timeline lines up with the study, we can see that 30% of the world's population was under some sort of confinement by January 25th. That expanded to roughly 70% by the end of February, 85% by mid-March, and by the beginning of April, quote, 89% of global emissions were in areas under some confinement, end quote. Now, the study found that with regards to daily activity, big surprise, aviation was hardest hit, showing a reduction of 75% in confinement group three areas. Surface transportation saw a reduction of 50%, followed by a 35% reduction in public buildings and commerce, as well as industry. Power decreased by 15%, and interestingly enough, residential, as a result of the massive increase of individuals working from home, actually saw a 5% increase in daily activity. Additionally, significant decreases that I won't detail out here were seen in confinement group 2 areas, and only incremental decreases in locations under level 1 confinement. Now keep in mind, these are activity numbers, not emissions. So now I know you're saying... Okay, okay, that's all fine and good, but give me the numbers. So let's start with a daily reduction peak. COVID-19 and the ensuing global confinements decreased daily CO2 emissions by approximately 17% by early April, where it appeared to peak on the 7th. This is equivalent to 2006 CO2 emission levels. Now, on a country-by-country basis, the average peak decreased by 26%. However, this did not happen all at once or on the same curve slope, hence the much lower global number. Now, the reduction in surface transport contributed the largest to the reduction in global CO2 emissions, with its own emissions dropping 36% and contributing a whopping 43% to the overall decline. Emissions from the industry sector fell by 19% and the power sector by 7.4%. These accounted for 86% of the reductions in CO2. The aviation sector, while only contributing about 10% to the global reduction, saw its own reductions in CO2 emissions fall by 60%. Finally, the public buildings and commerce saw a 21% reduction in its own numbers, and the residential segment actually saw a 2.8% gain. Now for the big one, total global reductions in CO2 emissions from January to April as compared to 2019 was approximately 8.6% or 1,048 megatons of CO2 lower. Now, while this is definitely something to get excited about, keep in mind that the Australian bushfires that we talked about two weeks ago released 350 megatons of CO2 which is effectively offsetting one-third of all the CO2 reduction benefits we have seen over the past several months. Still, that's something to celebrate. 
All that said, we definitely have our work cut out for us as the world gets back to work. Past crises saw rebounds significantly. Take, for instance, the global financial crisis of 2009, which saw a 1.4% reduction in anthropogenic CO2 emissions, only to have a 5.1% increase in emissions the following year. As we return to what the media likes to call the new normal, it's imperative that governments and corporations take a hard look at how business has changed during the pandemic and better align policy and practices with ones that continue to have a positive environmental impact. While some may argue that we need to forego regulations to bring back the economy, I would argue along with the greater scientific community that that's short-sighted. In a greener future is achievable, but only if we commit ourselves to such a path. And that wraps up today's show. I truly hope this show has provided you a short reprieve in these trying times. Be safe. I'll see you next week. And aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.